Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, we're not making that up. Today's guest did a whole lot better in hockey than I ever will, and also better in business, I have to be, has to be said. So we'll get to both those subjects very shortly. He is David Harlock, one of two only three-time captains at the University of Michigan Hockey. The previous was Connie Hill, a 28-year-old after World War II in the late 1940s. That's how unusual that is. He's also won a silver medal in the Olympics and played in the NHL before embarking on a very successful career in insurance brokerage, which we'll talk about here shortly. Uh, David, welcome. Good to see you, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, you grew up in uh, suburban Toronto, or as they say in Canada, Toronto, T-R-O-N-N-O. Only one T in Toronto if you're in Canada, as you know. Of course, you can tell Americans right away on that one, can't you? Once they say Toronto, you know they're Americans, correct? Absolutely. And and from a personal standpoint, I can't win. When I go back to Toronto and visit my family <laughs> and friends, they all say I sound like an American. Yet, now that I live and reside in the United States for quite some time, people pick up pretty quickly that my accent's a little bit different and, and ask where I'm from. You are now a man without a home. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that I've got a home, but... Okay. Well, you do, I think. Uh, 30, 30 some years should count for something, you'd think. But anyway, uh, you grew up in Toronto, of course, hockey mad city, probably the hockeyest, maddest city, Toronto and uh, Montreal, I assume. Um, and of course, you were a star player. You're also a twin, by the way, and your sister was not a hockey player. Tell us about being a twin. I once asked you a very stupid question. Well, probably many. But one of them was, what's it like being a twin? And your great answer was, I don't know. What's it like not being a twin? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm um, I'm blessed to have a twin sister. To make you feel a little bit better, I I do get a lot of dumb questions about being <laughs> a twin, um, <laughs> such as you know, do you look alike? You know, when's your birthday? <laughs> Things like that. But um, no, I'm blessed to have a, a a wonderful twin sister. I played an awful lot of hockey, as you might imagine, growing up, and and she was a figure skater. So my parents spent quite a bit of time in arenas. Um, but my sister uh, was and always has been my my biggest supporter. Kind of like that. So speaking of which, you're a very good student in Toronto, of course. You're also playing hotshot travel team hockey. You've got a lot of options after high school. These include, of course, playing juniors, and then you get paid for that in one level of Canada, of course. And that's the minor league track on the way to the NHL. 
or of course the college route. How'd you choose between getting paid and going to college? So I attended a, a small uh, private school in, in Toronto, um, started there in seventh grade and um, went all the way through uh, high school graduation. And one of the, the big things that uh, I learned there was uh, well-roundedness. And they really pushed the students to be involved in a lot of activities, so academic and extracurricular activities. So, um, you know, and then it, it was something that my parents um, very much promoted as well, was, was having choices in life. So, um, you, know, you are right that uh, when I was growing up in Toronto, the, the best hockey players took what I would call the, the fast path to professional hockey, and that was going the major junior route. And, um, you know, essentially, you know, you became a, a professional hockey player at a, a younger age. You got paid a little bit of money, but you played a lot more hockey games. Education was, was somewhat secondary. And for me, Growing up in a uh, a family with a, a father who was a chartered accountant and a mother that was a nursing professor, um, my choice of what path to go down was uh, very much rooted in analytics and academia. So I had I had some good advice not only from my parents but from others uh, in the Toronto area that started steering me at a, as a sort of a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old to the United States college hockey route. I'm very much thankful that, uh, that, that that's the, the, where I was directed and where I ended up. And your school was St. Mike's, correct? That's a legendary school in Toronto. So I actually, the, the, the prep school that I attended was Crescent. Uh, so it was a small private school. Um, but you are right that um, my last year of high school, I played junior B hockey at, at St. Michael's, um, which is a, a, a Catholic school in Toronto that back in the day was essentially the minor league team for the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's, it's had a storied hockey program um, and, and really still does to, to this day. So now you're choosing between the pros and college. You've already pretty much chosen, chosen college at that point. Now a lot of colleges are after you, of course. Harvard is after you. Michigan is after you. Lake Superior State is after you. Got any stories? <laughs> yeah, so um, it was interesting. Uh, when I was going through high school in, uh, in Ontario, um, the, the um, high school system was five years of high school. And my prep school started to transition to four years of high school. So at an early age, I started accelerating, and a couple of the universities in the United States realized that um, I could technically graduate after grade 11. I might have to take a class or two in the summer, but I would have the credits necessary. So I, I, I got an early start to, to recruiting and uh, was fortunate to be recruited by a number of universities. Um, and and have a, a a number of different options, which which was was good in one sense, but uh, certainly created a lot of debate within my family. Uh, as I mentioned, my mom was very much um, a proponent of um, academics and 
really when we when we met with coaches, when we explored universities and what they could offer, she was the one that truly drilled down on uh, the academic side of things. You know, I was young and impressionable and, you know, would would focus on the shiny objects such as, you know, who had won a, recently won a national championship or who played in a, a, a new arena and who had cool uniforms. But um, the, the head coach of Lake Superior uh, came to my house and for an in-house visit. And uh, during the course of the conversation, the time we spent together, he described Lake Superior State as a glorified high school. <laughs> and I don't know that I picked up on it at the time, but the minute that coach and his assistant coach walked out the door, my mom looked at me and said, you're not going to any glor- a glorified high school. You're about to graduate from high school. Why would I send you a, to, to another high school? And I tried to refute that point that mom, like they're one of the best teams in the country and they just won a national championship, but that fell on deaf ears. And that was a juggernaut, of course. Lake Superior State won, I believe, two national titles under Frank Anzalone and another one under Jeff Jackson, who followed him. And the great line in Sports Illustrated is, yes, we play like robots, but national champion robots was the line that one of the guys used. Dougie Waite, your future opponent, of course, played for uh, for the Edmonton Oilers. They had a very serious program, so to dismiss them that quickly for other schools uh, is really a testament to your mom's values on that one. And apparently, her point sunk in. Correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, luckily, I, uh, as I said, got sort of an early start in the recruiting process, so was able to to narrow down my sort of my options and then the schools that I felt were the best fit for me relatively quickly. My, my final two choices were uh, the University of Michigan and Cornell. And they had both been recruiting me for a few years. I liked a lot about both programs. The one thing that I wasn't certain about at Michigan was Red Berenson, the head hockey coach. You know, I loved the players on the team. I loved everything that the school had to offer academically. I liked the the direction that the hockey program was going in, but I wasn't certain about Red. And you know, you've met Red before. He is a very direct person. He's very strong in his beliefs, and. It, to a degree, it was it was frustrating to me because I would sit down with him and he would look me sh- straight in the eyes and say, "David, it's an easy choice. Like, either you want to come to Michigan or you don't." Like, it was so cut and dry for him. But you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was a, an impressionable sixteen and seventeen year old at the time, and other universities were rolling out the red carpet. And but but Red truly knew that you know I was the the type of person. And player that that belonged at at Michigan, and to this day, I'm I'm forever grateful that you know he you know really directed me to to Michigan, and and he ended up being one of the very best things that at, at the University of Michigan during my experience there. And of course, you guys are still close friends, and I would dare say he's been a lifelong mentor to you in many ways. Uh, he's very proud of your off ice success as much as I think, if not more, than your on ice success, which is a very Red Berenson approach to evaluating his players. So that's interesting. You get on a team, though, that is not Lake State. Lake State is winning national titles. Michigan is not winning national titles. They're fighting just to get into the NCAA tournament. And I recall at one point you guys go up to Lake State. It's a six-hour trip, of course, in I-75. 
to a small town, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, not Ontario, uh, about one quarter the size of the Ontario version, right across the canal, of course, and the Sulaks. You guys get smoked on a Friday night. And tell us about that game and tell us about Red's reaction the next morning. That was my first trip up to, to Lake Superior State. And I remember skating around the ice uh, during warm-ups and looking over at the Lake Superior State players. And it's probably the first time in my hockey career where I felt like I was a boy amongst men. Lake Superior's philosophy was uh, to recruit older players, many of which were from Western Canada, sort of the, the prairies, you know, they had were six foot two, 210 plus pounds. Many of them had full beards. I could hardly shave at that time. I was six foot two, but 180 pounds soaking wet. And I truly felt like I was going to get killed on the ice that night. And, and it, in many respects, it showed in in the in our performance. We lost badly the first night. It was like 10, 10 to one, was it? It was it was brutal. It, it, it was bad. Like there was. I know. It, I, I know it's double digits. Like I know it, they it scored was. ten. It was. It so was not. It, it was not even close. <laughs> no, not even close. Not even by a touchdown. I don't think. No. <laughs> to make sports, and I recall uh, somebody told me at one point that uh, at the end of the night we knew their fight song. You heard it enough times. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, you got shellacked by a bunch of men. And he and Red has got a young team at this point, trying to build this thing, trying to get it back to what it was when he played the next morning. Yeah, I mean, the conversation was was really around: Are we will Are we going to fight? You know, are we going to battle back? You know, there was you know, nothing that we could do that would change the outcome of the the game the night before, but we could salvage the weekend by winning that night. In in some respects, he he attacked our manhood. You know, we had a much better performance that night and uh, eked out a win. And from my standpoint, it really was one of the important building blocks of the program. You know, Red had uh, been making strides each year since he took over the program. I think I was the fifth class that that came in and. Um, you know, that was definitely a, an important milestone because they were, as you mentioned, an elite college hockey team. Definitely. The bus ride home had to be a whole lot happier that way. Six hours. When you get your butt kicked 10 to 1 or whatever it was, that's a very long six hours. If you can get on the bus after, I think, a 3-2 or 4-3 victory, a tight, close-checking game, defensive game, the next day, boy, that feels a whole lot different, doesn't it? Absolutely. And and I always remember the trips back from Lake Superior State. For For some reason, we always ended up playing up there in the in the late fall it always ended up during hunting season so the trips home was always i remember looking out the windows at pickup trucks just with row after row of of deer <laughs> from from hunting season that's funny oh that's a good memory there too of course you were elected a captain an actual c not an assistant captain uh, luke glendening almost pulled off that trick with an assistant captain his sophomore year but three C's, sophomore, junior, and senior year, that means at the end of your freshman year, when they vote for captains, you had outgoing seniors voting for a freshman to lead their team the next year. That's unheard of. Again, you and Connie Hill, a World War II veteran, 1947-48, somewhere in there when he's about 28, 29. He would never tell me his actual age, by the way, but I know he was a solid seven or eight years older than the average freshman, I believe. Um, what was that like? How did that happen? I know you did not campaign for that. And the surest way to not be the captain at Michigan is to campaign for it. Uh, tell us about that experience. It was certainly a surprise. Um, 
you know, when I came in as a freshman, I think Red used to always make the comment that you're a freshman up until Christmas time. And then when you come back after Christmas time, you're no longer a freshman. And by that, he was really getting at the fact that you've played enough games, you understand the academic rigor and the responsibility of managing hockey and school. You know, you've you've got enough games under your belt that you know it's time to sort of take off as a freshman and 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 I really took that to heart. Um, I definitely had some some ups and downs during the the first part of the the season, but I think when I look back on my freshman year, I would would view it as me being authentic. You know, I didn't come in and try and be somebody that I wasn't. I spent a lot of the first half of the the season listening, absorbing things, taking them in, and during the second part of the season felt more comfortable speaking up in the locker room on the bench. And in in terms of being authentic, it, it really was you know, the relationship that I established with my teammates. You know, I think it starts with my freshman class. There were six of us and, you know, establishing good rapport with them and, um, you know, I guess passing along or showing them that I had some leadership qualities and, and then that uh, carried over during the, the, the second part of, of, of the season. Uh, but no question about it. It was a surprise. The Players voted on it, voted on captains at that time. And I, well, I don't know this in, for, in true certainty, but I, I suspect the, the coaches had final say if, if the players were way off base. I'm, I'm sure they had a trump card that, that they could play. And, and I was fortunate to be elected as a captain with a senior. So my sophomore year, there were, we were co-captains. And so I had you know, someone with more experience, you know, standing there right beside me and, and helping me kind of navigate those new waters. How does your role change from being a star player to being a captain? What's different about it? I, I mean, to me, you know, I've always looked at at being a captain as in, in some respects being a mentor and in some respects being a, a father figure and in, in another respect being sort of a, another sort of coaching voice. I've always felt that the the strongest teams have leadership voices that uh, mirror the the coach in some respects. So, you know, the the teams that I've always played on that were the strongest, the players were were already talking amongst themselves rather than needing the coach to come in the locker room and relay that message. You know, for me, you know, when I look back on my freshman year, you know, there were there were definitely parts of it where I was really focused on myself and just trying to get my feet underneath me and feel comfortable. You know, starting certainly my sophomore year and my next uh, two years after that, you know, a lot of my focus was um, about the team and what needed to be done to make Michigan better and making sure that you know all of the players on the team were properly aligned with you know the goals objectives. Red's vision of of the program, and and that's you know not only on the ice but in the classroom, you know in society. So it definitely there's there's more responsibility, more of a burden. But I never viewed it that way. Uh, I always I always really enjoyed being in in that position and um, helping out my teammates and ultimately helping Michigan. Well, you've hit upon some great principles there, David. No surprise. 
Uh, one of my comments when I'm on the stage doing this kind of work is your culture is not what the leader says in front of everybody. Your culture is what they say to themselves after you leave. That's what the real thing is. And that's the role you play. When Red leaves the room, what are people talking about? That's when you need the layers of leadership. If it's just the head coach or the CEO or the dean or the director, you don't have any leadership. You need layers of leadership. It has to, as you say, cascade down. And if I don't have strong captains, we're screwed. And I knew that going in, that it's when I leave and I always left the room to the captains, like your buddy, Chris Fragner and others, they always give the last speech and I have no idea what they ever said, but whatever that was, was more important than what I was going to say. So I would leave the room. And I think Red did that a lot with you guys as well. Gave you a lot of responsibility. Red is not a huge talker like you, but when Berenson speaks, you shut up and you listen. And I think you have very much the same effect on your guys. That's more or less how he treated the captains, right? As secondary coaches? A absolutely. You know, we got together with, uh, as, as the sort of group of captains, we got together with Red from time to time just to talk about the team and how things were going and, and whatnot. But he very much uh, empowered us to um, lead those conversations in the locker room when the door was closed and there were not coaches in the room with us. And uh, he had that level of confidence uh, in us. And, and I, I very much valued that. And of course, you've taken that with you in business since. We'll get to that shortly. Uh, your team goes from losing 10 to 1 to uh, Lake State to beating them. And then things start changing for the whole squad. You've struggled to make the NCAA tournament. And now you say you guys start getting into the Frozen Four, the final four, of course, of hockey. What was that transition like, and when could you tell that things were changing? I think I felt that things were changing really right from my from my freshman year. You know, we had sort of incremental improvement each year, and to me, I I attribute that to uh, Red Berenson's vision and the culture that he created. You know, to me, culture isn't something you know like a a phrase that gets put on a wall. I mean, it's it's truly the values that you know Red as the leader imparted on on the team, and each year it just got a little bit better and a little bit stronger, and 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 some of that was you know he was able to bring in you know more of we'll call it sort of his type of player in person. Um, you know, when he came in, he inherited a team, and so it it, it took some time to move and sort of steer the ship in in the direction that he wanted it to go but i really did start noticing that my freshman year at, at the end of my we, we finished the regular season my freshman year in fourth place bowling green finished in third place and then we got to the playoffs we lost in the semifinals and bowling green lost in the semifinals and back in that day there was a consolation game and we beat Bowling Green in the consolation game. And I remember going through and shaking hands with them at the end of the game. And they were all wishing us well in the NCAA tournament. But a few days later, when the NCAA tournament draw was announced, Bowling Green was in and we were out. And, you know, it was one of those really demoralizing moments. Not so much for me, because I knew I had three more opportunities to make the NCAA tournament. It was, it was for the seniors. It was for guys like Alex Roberts and Todd Copeland that, you know, really had worked exceedingly hard to get to that point. And uh, from my vantage point, they deserve to, to be in the NCAA tournament. But I think in another sense, that was a spark that got us to the NCAA tournament the next year. And we won the first round lost out to a really strong Boston University team in the in the quarterfinals and then 
my junior year, we made it to the frozen four. And then my senior year, we made it to the frozen four. So, you know, the ball really was, was rolling in the right direction. And then, you know, three years after I graduated, Red won his first national championship. But that's what it took. It took uh, four or five shots at the Frozen Four, four or five years where you were good enough any one of those years, Michigan was, to win a national title before you win a national title. Pucks bounce, some heartbreaking overtime losses. You suffered a couple of those, I believe. Uh, Mike Knubel, your successor, of course, ended up playing in the NHL and won some Stanley Cups. He said, look, if you're getting your butt kicked by Lake State 10 to 1, you know what's coming, and the end's not that heartbreaking. Losing in overtime, the last game you'll ever play, that is heartbreaking. And there's no question that when you get that close, it's more heartbreaking. One of the best lines I've ever read in sports writing came from a guy named Hayward Brown, a Yale drama professor, also a sports writer somehow. I don't know how that happened. 1920s. He said, the tragedy of man is not that he loses, it's that he almost wins. And that, if you've lost in overtime, you know exactly. That one I bet you still feel 30 years later. Absolutely. But the, the interesting piece is that when I look back on that game, uh, and John's talking about our uh, my senior year when we lost to Maine uh, in overtime, we had a lead in the game, gave it up late in the third period, and then ended up losing in overtime. Uh, Maine was a phenomenal team. And, you know, I think... Uh, time provides perspective, and I'm able to look back on that now and and recognize that that Maine probably was a better team. You know, when you look at their roster, you know they probably had half of their team went on and played in the National Hockey League. I mean, they were an extremely strong team. the The prior year, my junior year, is is really the one that I lament the most because there were three teams from our league that made it to the Frozen Four. There was ourselves, Michigan State, Lake Superior State, and Wisconsin was the fourth team. And we had beaten Michigan State and Lake Superior State all season long. So we went into that semifinal game with supreme confidence, but we played Wisconsin. And we just did not have a strong game. You know, we did not perform the way that we needed to. I think we ended up losing 4-2. And Lake Superior State walked away with the national championship. And we'd beaten them all season long. So that was the one where I really do look back and think that uh, and believe that we were the best team in the Frozen Four. We just didn't perform the best when we needed to. Those are the ones that hurt more. I've done both uh, as a player and coach, of course. Yeah, if the better team wins, okay, we could have won. That hurts a little bit. The one that I'll never forget is my last game as a head coach. When Dan and I knew we were better, and everyone knew we were better, and we all shot him two to one. And here's the worst part, Harley. I'm still ticked off 20 years later. <laughs> Berenson warned me about this. Red Berenson, 1962, before I was born, he lost the Final Four himself against St. Lawrence, a team that should not have lost to. They're much better. He One shot, he hit the inside pipe. The inside pipe, it comes out. And that's when he says, that's when you know you're screwed and you're not going to win. And, uh, and he says it's supposed to get softer over time, and it's only gotten worse. So sorry, kids out there. <laughs> the bitter losses become more bitter over time. So let's skip that topic. We're, we're done with that for now. You go on, of course, to play uh, minor league hockey, but then you went, went to the – sorry, you went right away to the Canadian national team, another choice you made, which is not necessarily the fastest route to the NHL. Uh, but that was an experience that you would not trade for much, I don't think, playing for Team Canada. That's correct. For me, as, as you mentioned, growing up in Canada – you know, boys essentially were, were born with hockey skates on. And nowadays, I would say that boys and girls in Canada are born with hockey skates on. I, I can't say that my, my dream was always to play in the National Hockey League, because that's 
just not the truth. Um, I remember uh, always spending time between Christmas and New Year's watching the World Junior Tournament, wherever it was. And so that's 20 and under players compete in a tournament and it, it moves around from country to country each year. But I always remember being just mesmerized by that. And then I started paying more attention to the Olympics. And the 1988 Olympics was hosted in Calgary. And I remember, you know, because it was a, you know, a closer time zone, I remember watching a lot of the Olympic hockey games, especially the ones that Canada played in. At, you know, at that time, that really became my goal. You know, I thought about how cool would it be to represent my country? You know, not only in a world junior tournament, but ultimately in, in an Olympics. What you did do, by the way, while you're at Michigan, you get a few weeks off around Christmas every year to play in the world junior tournament, I believe, twice? I played in it once. Um, once, so sorry. My, my, my sophomore year. Canada, hockey is, is Canada's national sport. I mean, I think technically lacrosse was the national sport originally. And then over time, with the popularity of hockey, lacrosse is now our summer national sport and hockey's our winter national sport but you know all kinds of attention gets focused on hockey and and in Canada we hadn't won a medal in in Olympic hockey in quite some time and so the the 90, the 88 Olympics really um, provided a spark inside of me to to pursue that goal and as you mentioned I was fortunate enough to be able to play in the world junior tournament my sophomore year in in college that was uh, sort of one of the few uh, arm wrestling matches that I had with with Red because I had to actually step away from the team. The, the Canadian, the way the Canadian system works is that you had to go, there was a sort of a camp in the summer where they invited a bunch of players and an evaluation took place then. And then they narrowed that list down during the course of fall play and invited a select group to a second tryout in December. And in order for me to do that, I had to miss a home series against Lake Superior State. Ooh, big one. Uh, Red and I had a lot of discussion around that. And, you know, as a captain of the team, but it was something that I really was, was passionate about and wanted the opportunity. And, you know, Red's position was that you know, they already know who really is on the team. Like, what, you shouldn't even need to go and try out. They should be able to tell you. And I didn't feel like I had that kind of clout to, you know, pull a power play on the, you know, Canadian Ice Hockey Federation. So, but I, I was fortunate enough to be able to play in the World Juniors that year. And then the way things aligned with respect to the Olympics, when I graduated from, from Michigan, uh, I stepped right into an Olympic year. So I was able to negotiate a clause in my first professional contract, whereby if I didn't make the NHL team, instead of being assigned to their minor league team, I would be assigned to the Canadian Olympic team. And uh, that's the way it, it worked. Now, now tell the truth, David, tell the truth. Did you want to get picked up? And Toronto had your rights, I believe, correct? So your hometown team, the team you grew up watching in Maple Leaf Gardens, the classic uniforms, the whole bit. This is this is the Yankees of of Canada. Obviously, this is the the most popular team, one of the most one of the wealthiest teams, of course. <clears throat> you grew up watching them, and now you got a chance potentially to play for the for Team Canada in the Olympics, which I believe were in Lillehammer that year. Um, so a gorgeous place, of course, in Norway. 
did you really want to make the Toronto Maple Leaf top team or do you want to go to the Olympics? Tell the truth. I would say that I was extremely realistic about it. At that time, the Toronto Maple Leafs were a veteran team. You know, Pat Burns was the head coach. They had Doug Gilmore and Matt Sundin, and they really had a ton of, of veteran players. And that was the type of, of player that Pat Burns liked. So I, I ended up being one of the last cuts, but I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to end up making the Toronto Maple Leafs that year. So I had a good, a good experience during training camp and then was, was instead of being sent to their minor league team in St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, I was sent out to Calgary to reconnect with the, with the Canadian Olympic team. And by the way, if you've been to St. John, Newfoundland, which is on the rock, as they call it, or Calgary, or even Lillehammer, Quite a change, by the way. Uh, St. John, beautiful town, fishing town and all that. Uh, famous in Annie Prue's uh, The Shipping News, of course. Nonetheless, if I had to choose between St. John, Newfoundland and Calgary, I might be leaning toward Calgary. I, I ended up spending some time in St. John's, Newfoundland after the Olympics, and, and I really did enjoy it out there. The people are extremely passionate. I mean, we were treated like NHL hockey players out there. You know, anywhere we walked into, people knew who we were. We had exceptional support. But to your point, it's it's just very remote. It is very remote. And your old teammate, Kent Brothers, of course, is from there. Uh, might be the, the governor of that province someday. We'll see. But anyway. Um, all right. So the Olympics. What would you learn from the Olympics? And what was that experience like? So I found out that I made the Olympic team probably three days before we left to fly over to Lillehammer for the Olympics. You know, I wow. wasn't, I wow. wasn't, I wasn't one of those people that had a guarantee that I was going to be on the Olympic team. It truly was a tryout sort of throughout the, um, the fall season. And we played games all over the world. We played in all across, you know, North America from big cities to, small fishing villages to small farm towns in the middle of the prairies. I love the experience. It's, uh, you know, to me, it was a little bit of like my, my study abroad. I have a, a daughter that's a, a, a sophomore at the University of Michigan, and she's talking about study abroad during her junior year. And I obviously didn't have that luxury in terms of being a student athlete, but I look at my Olympic years, a little bit of my study abroad year where I got to Travel all over the world. Just tell her to make the Canadian Olympic team. All set. <laughs> Boom. Done. You're welcome. Exactly. Um, so, but it, it, it uh, as I said, I, I didn't find out until about three days before that I was actually had made the team. And then it's truly is just a whirlwind after that. You know, we had been over to, to Lillehammer. They had a, a pre-Olympic tournament there in the fall. So we had played in the two arenas that um, housed the hockey games. We had lived in the Olympic Village. We had eaten in the cafeterias. So there was some familiarity there. But when you get over there, you truly get wrapped up in this sort of small little bubble. And you know, we played every other day. On the off days, we would practice, have meetings, rest and relax, prepare for the next game. And it truly was just all about that next day, that next game. You know, it's on my bucket list to go back to a Winter Olympics as a, as a spectator to truly be able to appreciate and experience everything. Because 
as a team, we were, we were able to go to the opening ceremonies. And I remember as a team, we uh, attended the moguls event. But aside from that, how I viewed the Olympics would have been no different than how you viewed the Olympics. We sat in the Olympic Village and watched events on, on television. And, you know, maybe we had a little bit of the advantage of, you know, coming across somebody in the cafeteria that had won an, an Olympic medal in the biathlon the day before, or you'd come across the Jamaican bobsled team and things like that. But you truly just lived in this little bubble and it was all about the next day, the next game. Um, and moving on. You guys have been battling the U.S. team. You probably played them 10 times or so along the way throughout the exhibition, the long exhibition season. They had, it seemed like the upper hand on you guys, and yet when it mattered, they didn't, and you guys get to the silver, the, the gold medal game. No question about it. I think you're right. We played them probably 10 or 12 times sort of in exhibition games or, or preparation games leading up to the Olympics and played them all across the United States and Canada. And I think we beat them once and tied them once and lost wow. er, lost every other game. Like they beat us eight or ten times easily. You know they were they were close games, but they clearly had the upper hand leading into the Olympics. the The interesting part is that both teams made a few modifications to their rosters just before the Olymp the uh, the Olympic Games started, as as the results would show in the Olympics, the tweaks that we made benefited us the tweaks the u.s team made were detrimental to them and there you are so there you are in the gold medal game it is tied you're playing sweden very close to their home ice of course right across the border in norway it goes to overtime and the great peter forsberg it goes down to a shootout which you hate and now i know why you hate them but anyway a shootout tell us about that so we had played sweden in the round robin they were in our bracket and we'd beaten them and it was a close game, very competitive. Um, and then as we advanced through the medal round, uh, we did end up playing them in the, the gold medal game. And they had, I mean, they had Stanley Cup winners on their team. Matt Snazland was, was one of their players. And the game ended up, we were, we were leading in the third period. They got a power play, scored on a, a power play goal with about six minutes left. And then we knew prior to the game that there would be a 10-minute sudden death overtime period and that if the game wasn't decided, it would go to a shootout. And the way it was described to me was that the reason for that was because of the television networks, that of our course. game, the gold medal hockey game, was the last Olympic event before they transitioned over to the closing ceremony. So our game needed to be done by a very specific time. So we went into the 10-minute sudden death overtime period. It ends up being tied. Then we go into a, a shootout. And um, as you alluded to, I'm not a fan of shootouts just because hockey is a team game. And from my vantage point, it should be decided by the team rather than by an individual skills competition. You know, in general, European players are more skilled than North American players. But I think what we bring is, you know, more grit, more determination, probably more, a little more cohesiveness from a, a team standpoint. So going into the shootout, I, I think in hindsight, I look back and the advantage probably was, was towards, was in Sweden's favor. But the first five players go for each team were still tied. Then 
Then it goes into really essentially sudden death shootouts. Our first player goes, doesn't score. Their next player goes, doesn't score. And uh, as you mentioned, Peter Forsberg, who you know went on as had, had an illustrious career in the NHL, Hockey Hall of Fame, he pulled one of those sort of breakaway shootout goals that seem to be more commonplace nowadays in, in hockey, but was completely unexpected, especially with the magnitude of, of that game. Um, and he ended up scoring. And then our best offensive player, Paul Correa, went and ended up being stopped by their goalie, Tommy Salo, who ended up being later, ended up being a teammate of mine in the NHL. And um, it, it was it was demoralizing. You know, it was Sweden's first gold medal in hockey ever. Um, the move that Peter Forsberg pulled, Sweden turned that into a, a stamp, a national stamp. It was like it was there was that much attention and jubilation throughout the entire country of Sweden. Um, so I, I ended up walking away with a, a silver medal. Well, there you go. Well, there are worse things, worse consolation prizes than an Olympic silver medal, no question about it. But Forsberg's move, for you non-hockey fans, instead of putting two hands on the stick and shooting the puck as you normally would towards the net, he put one hand on the stick, put the puck on the far left side, and acted as though he's going to bring it across the goalie and just slid it behind the goalie with one hand. That, I have to give him credit, is a big-time move. So the goalie sniffs it out. is the easiest thing in the world to stop. And if you let it go through, it's incre- incredibly embarrassing, I suppose. So... Hats off. You got a silver medal. You have brought this occasionally to your girls' classes in Ann Arbor. That's got to be cool. To me, that's the best part of, of winning a, a, a silver medal is the ability to share it with others. The first half a dozen years or so uh, after the Olympics, I uh, would leave the, the medal with my, with my parents. And, you know, from time to time, you know, friends or people that they would know would ask to see it. Neighborhood kids would knock on the door and ask if they could see it. So it was really neat for for them to to be able to do that. And then, you know, as as I started having children, um, when they were younger, you know, I I became sort of a, a part of show and tell, where I would get <laughs> brought into their their classroom and. You know, would would bring some of my hockey equipment from the Olympics, and would get a you know one of their classmates all dressed up in my uniform, and you know then would show the children the Olympics. And, and for a, a few years, we would do that almost on an annual basis. But at the very least, we would do it sort of each time a, a Winter Olympics would roll around, and teachers would be talking about the Olympics to the to their classes. So that was always a you know certainly a special memory of mine. Well, it takes a bit of the sting out as well. Your next stop is the Toronto Maple Leafs themselves, your childhood team. Here you are in blue and white, the classic uniform, and yet it was not everything you'd hoped for. And I think that was just a, a product of timing more than than anything, because the the overwhelming majority of of people that you would speak to who had the privilege of playing in the National Hockey League all remember vividly their first game in the National Hockey League. And by the way, by the way, every single one of them I've talked to, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Phil Esposito, the list is long, and they do not forget this. And and well, 
I can't say that I for, forgot my first game in the NHL. It, it's just that it happened two weeks after the gold medal game against Sweden. And, and to me, anything was going to pale in comparison to that. I mean, as, as we've chatted about, that truly was my goal. Like I wanted to compete in the Olympics. I wanted to win a medal. I wanted to win a gold medal for, for Canada. And so to be in that environment and then two weeks later sort of transition into playing my, my first national hockey league game, it, it just, it, doesn't it didn't resonate with me to to the same extent as the gold medal game that's interesting and then of course you still played on uh 200 some games for the maple leafs the washington capitals the new york islanders the atlanta thrashers a good run to say the least uh but by the end were you ready to do something else um absolutely um one of the, the best pieces of advice that i was given when my professional hockey career started was that I couldn't use my degree and experience at the University of Michigan as a crutch. That if I wanted to be successful in professional hockey, I had to find that same level of desperation to 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 succeed as a lot of the the players that I was competing against. That that is interesting, by the way, because the guys you're going against might have been high school dropouts. They're from Flin Flon or wherever, and this is it. If they don't make it. They're going back to the mines or the or the farms or the factories. Uh, this is their one shot. Correct. So you're going against that. Exactly. So I, I'm I've always been a curious person by nature, and so during my my professional career, I I did explore. You know, would spend time either during the season or during the off season exploring what else was out there and what might be next after my hockey career ended because. I knew my hockey career, there was a, you know, a, a finite or a specific timeline to it, and it wasn't going to be that, that long. You know, I had a good run in professional hockey. My body started to, to fail me at the end, and surgery started to, to pile up. And, and then earlier in my career, I, didn't, I, I was content with spending time in the minors, climbing that mountain to get to the NHL. And then my last year of professional hockey... I was sent back to the minors and and in many respects, it felt like I was falling off the other side of the, of that mountain. So I was ready to move on. I was ready for, to do new things and, and to um, take on new challenges. And now you start a great career with your degree. Of course, you earned it while a student at Michigan, your great career in insurance brokering. Please tell us what that is. You worked for Highland and now Marsh and what skills and traits have you brought from athletics? Uh, into your current career? So um, I do, I work at Marsh McLennan and we're a large publicly traded company. You know, the area that, that I focus in is, is risk management and insurance. So I work with businesses to help them analyze and evaluate their risk, whether it's people risk or product risk. Um, or financial risk. And there's a number of different ways of, of handling that and, and managing that. But in general, I'm a sort of a consultant and, a, and, and help businesses uh, protect themselves. 
it's it's something that I've if you had told me that uh, when I graduated from the University of Michigan that I would end up in the insurance world and in a sales position, I would have told you that you were crazy. But um, I truly love what I'm doing. Uh, I think that one of the things that I've um, figured out in myself that I, I I love to do is just is is help is to help people. Um, I love to be a, a servant in 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 many respects. That's what I'm doing. And you know, in terms of I think some of the things that that I've taken with me or have learned in my hockey career that I've I've seen play out in the the business world are that you know one of the things that that really resonates is that you know high performers who do not have uh, who are not trustworthy or um, people don't want to work with or are extremely selfish in general do not benefit the team they do not benefit the culture um, they do not make businesses better in the long term and you know that's certainly something that I saw play out in hockey and on a consistent basis where you know you could have someone that you know put up a ton of points but in many respects were a cancer on the team because it was all about them and they didn't buy into the values of of the team and um, I certainly see some of that in in the business world and I think another thing that I, I see and and um, experience quite regularly is that you you have to be comfortable with failure and in the sports world you know you do you you fail on a on a daily basis and in many respects you fail in a very public forum you know you can be in an arena with 20,000 people there and you make a critical mistake and you end up losing the game but you know you have to be able to get back up dust yourself off and keep going. And I, I see that in, in the business world and what I'm doing where, you know, mistakes are made. We don't win deals. We, you know, fail as a, as a group. And it's, you know, there's probably more failure than there are wins, but that's what truly allows you to um, enjoy and relish the wins when they do come around. But it's, it's I guess, the persistence would, would be how I summarize it. Uh, persistence, but yes, in the face of failure, that's the key. One reason why certain corporations like Stryker, for example, love hiring military and former athletes is for that reason. You can take a punch in the nose. And when Muhammad Ali beats George Foreman in the famous Rumble in the Jungle in the Rope of Dope, Foreman was a far better puncher and Ali was far better at taking a punch and he wins. And man, if I had to choose between a puncher and a guy who can take a punch, I'll take the latter. And I I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. These are these are great, great lessons, by the way. I'm taking my usual scan of notes here during our conversation. I'll boil it down to three things and ask you one more question. One, as far as leadership goes, one of the easy keys is listen before you lead and be authentic. It's easy, but it's, oh, it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy, I should say. Uh, I love that one, of course. Um, high performers without team spirit cost you more than they're worth. Team spirit goes a long way. Focus on the team. And the third thing, of course, I love this one too, be comfortable with the failure. I'm now the father of an eight-year-old who does not like failing, it turns out. And I keep on telling him, look, pal, 
You're not going to play the song right the first time. You're not going to win the first hockey game. You're not going to hit the ball every time. You have to get over this. And that's one of the biggest things is those who don't quit. I told them there are a lot of better writers than I was in my program, but I'm still writing. So I guess I'm still here. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for keep on coming back. So I love that. Last question, Captain Harlock, as I often call you. And by the way, one more bonus for – I'll say this one for the, for the very end. Who was your favorite teacher? So I will say that I've been fortunate to have a number of, of wonderful teachers and, and mentors, but there's one, uh, his name was Terry Bidiak, and he was my high school gym teacher. And he was a big, burly, sort of Romanian man, big chest, bushy mustache, and as I mentioned earlier, the private school that I went to, we had uniforms that we had to wear. So we would scurry down to gym class and then would, at, when gym class ended, we'd have to get our uniforms back on. And he would always say to us in this sort of thick accent, he would be, so would say, look sharp, feel sharp, babies. And as he would sort of send us off back to class. And he ended up being one of my soccer coaches as well. And sort of his phrase would sort of transition to look sharp, feel sharp, play sharp. But the lessons that I really took for that, and it, it, it's, it still sticks, me, sticks with me to this day, is that you know, there's only so many things that we have to control. And you know, your, your appearance and being put together and paying attention to the details really matter. And, you know, that's something that uh, I, I always really appreciated about him. And his delivery was kind of in a humorous way, but it, it clearly stuck with me to this day. Look sharp, feel sharp, play sharp. Love that one, of course. It's amazing how that's about 30 some years ago. You still remember the guy. That's pretty impressive, of course. One last kudo for my friend David Harlock. He's also a skilled marathoner. He's done very good work at the New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon. But I believe your greatest accomplishment as a runner was dragging my butt around for about 20 miles, uh, about 10 times or so before I ran my fake marathon of five hours around Ann Arbor. I will always be indebted. They say your character is what you do when you think no one's watching. I guarantee you, you're dragging my butt through Gallup Park and all the rest. Nobody's watching, David. There's no Olympics. There's no NHL. Guaranteed that. And you did a wonderful thing there. I'll always be uh, in your debt for that. So thank you for that. Uh, and a great talking to you, as always. It's, it's been a privilege. It was a privilege uh, running a few miles with, with you that day during your marathon. And it's, uh, I feel fortunate to have you as a friend. So thank you. Well, you're very kind. That's on the record. You realize this now. So just so you know. So anyway, my guest has been David Harlock, uh, three-time Michigan captain, Olympic silver medalist, NHL star, and of course, now a star in business as well. You are listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And of course, that is not a joke. Please tell your friends, leave a review, subscribe to our podcast, and we'll keep it going. Captain, once again, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. 
please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.